Hi, everybody, and welcome to Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments, where we invite leaders from our investment team to offer their analysis of the investment landscape and the economic outlook. I'm Jay Diamond, Head of Thought Leadership for Guggenheim Investments, and I'll be hosting today. We are recording this episode on June 7th, 2023. Today's recording comes at a time that feels like we are at or near an inflection point. The Federal Open Market Committee meets next week, and market expectations are for no hike, which would be the first for the Fed since it started its aggressive rate hikes in March of 2022. The Fed's historic hiking campaign has upended the financial world and reset market prices, particularly for fixed income. This made 2022 a transition year for bonds, but so far, 2023 has turned out to be a constructive environment for active fixed income managers. But what is next? To help answer this and other questions, and to connect it all to portfolio strategy, we are very fortunate to have with us Ann Walsh, who is CIO for Guggenheim Partners Investment Management. In her role, Ann and the team she leads is responsible for over $224 billion in total assets, from a client base that includes insurance companies, institutions, and individual investors. We always want to know what Ann is thinking about the macro outlook, market conditions, and portfolio strategy. So, Ann, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jay, and thank you to everybody listening. Well, thanks. Now, before we begin, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Ann was named to the Barron's List of 100 Most Influential Women in Finance for the fourth year in a row. So congratulations, Anne, on this well-deserved recognition. Thank you very much. All right. Now, let's just dive right into it, Anne. There's a lot going on in the market, but what macro themes do you think will be the biggest driver of returns over the next 12 months? So, Jay, I have to tell you, this is one of the most challenging times to be an investor. We have so many global macro themes that have really shifted over the last 18 months. We have emerging on the heels of the Fed having raised rates 500 basis points, engaged in quantitative tightening, that's the reduction of the balance sheet. We've had an unsettled bank environment. We've certainly had a great deal of volatility in fixed income and equities since the beginning of 2022. And we have seen the increased risk of what we would call tail risk or unique risks in the marketplace that are emerging. We might otherwise refer to that as idiosyncratic risk. And frankly, this makes for a very challenging backdrop. So let's talk about what we're seeing from the Fed first. But the Fed's not the only game in town right now. We are having to look at risks in a very different and broader way. But starting with the Fed, we think that as we are approaching next week's meeting, it's likely that the Fed skips the June rate hike. Now, it kind of comes down to what happens with the CPI print on Tuesday. But our expectation is, is that they've signaled that they want to see if the 500 basis points of rate hikes combined with the quantitative tightening has had enough of an effect. And so while we are predicting a recession later this year, so are they. And by pausing or at least skipping this one month, that gives them the opportunity to see more data, not just one CPI print coming out next week, but also to gauge how effective the Fed tightening activity has been to date. So I think that's what we're going to see in the short run. 
In the longer run, however, there's a lot of other factors, which we're going to talk about in a few moments. That's right. So uh, one of those factors, longer run perhaps, but not too long, uh, you mentioned recession. So where do you think we are in the economic cycle, and what might this mean for the credit cycle? So it's really interesting. So the first half of this year, in 2023, we've seen the instability of the banking community. And all this activity that's happening is really being driven mostly by rates. We haven't seen the credit cycle really take off. In fact, we've seen almost the opposite. We've seen in fixed income spreads tighten in the spread sectors, and that includes in high yield. We've certainly seen equities perform very well in the broad indexes. And so as a result, what are we looking at? We're looking at a pretty happy market, a nice tailwind, if you will. But eventually, the Fed's activities, along with some new fiscal aspects that we haven't yet talked about, are going to drive us into a recessionary framework. Now, the question is going to be, when does it start? Probably mid, mid to late third quarter. How long does it last? Well, recessions tend to last about a year. It may or may not, and I'll describe why in a moment. Is it going to be a deep recession? We don't think so. These tailwinds that I've already referenced will continue, and so we think that's going to provide some level of stability and put a floor under the, the level of the recession. But more likely what we're going to see is what I would refer to as rolling recessions. We've already started to see that evolve. In 2022, we saw manufacturing go into a type of a slowdown or a recession. And in fact, we actually had two quarters of negative GDP, a lot of that being driven by inventories. But we didn't call it a recession. But if you were in manufacturing, you felt like it was in one. And then subsequently, we've seen tech. Now, tech in 2022 slowed down and there were layoffs. We've seen cryptocurrency winter. And now the next shoe to fall is likely to be secondary or tertiary commercial real estate, likely in office space. So these kinds of rolling recessions are likely to continue. It won't feel as bad as one big ginormous recession, but it will be a very significant slowdown in the economy. We really haven't seen the consumer slowing down yet, the households. Well, and we haven't because of the full employment story. So of course, what we've seen is employment has been very strong. Now we did recently, late last week, see that we got to a 3.7% level of unemployment. But a lot of that was driven by an increase in participation rate, which actually means, guess what? More people are employed, and as a result, that gives the consumer a little extra jingle in their pocket. And so as a result, that also means that the consumer will be hmm, buoyed by feeling pretty confident in their ability to pay for goods and experience services like restaurants or, or trips or uh, going to hotels and, and traveling. So as a result, again, that gives us more confidence that there's enough of a tailwind to make this recession that we're predicting to not be ter terribly deep. So you did mention uh, the fiscal side of this as well. Um, the Fed, as we know, controls monetary policy, Congress and Washington controls fiscal policy. There's been some things going on there. What's your reaction to the debt policy solution and what might this mean going forward? Well, so I think a number of investors were very concerned about the debt ceiling discussions and negotiations. 
Interestingly enough, our friends in Congress normally aren't that prepared, and they normally don't actually get on top of these potential limbing problems until it's absolutely the last minute. This time they did a better job than that, uh, than they have historically. And so as a result, what did we see? We saw a fairly reasonable debt ceiling raise uh, with some negotiations with regard to fiscal restraint, we'll call it that. And that's, a, I think, a positive. That gets us another two years, so we won't have to go through this drama again. And certainly as we come through an election cycle, that will be also a positive. Now, notably, because they were able to complete the debt ceiling negotiation, what does that mean for the Treasury? Well, the Treasury had been running down their balances quite significantly. And so what have they got to do now? They've got to re inflate, if you will, their liquidity and their balance sheet. And so what's going to happen is they're going to have to issue approximately a trillion dollars of treasuries, most of which will be issued in the form of T-bills. So what does this mean? A whole lot of extra supply of treasuries coming into the market while the Fed is engaged in quantitative tightening. So they're not going to be there to buy those treasuries. And that's going to have the effect of having a supply and demand imbalance, which means short rates affected by or impacted by this issuance of T-bills are going to remain high in yield. And that means we're going to continue to see an inverted yield curve. And it could also crowd out people issuing at the short end for a little while, at least. Well, absolutely. So as a result, that's going to have a tightening effect as well. So you're going to have monetary policy in the form of the continued reduction of the balance sheet by the Fed, and you're going to have this fiscal tightening because of the issuance of these treasuries with no automatic QE buyer built in, as we've seen in the number of years going in the past. So as a result, all of this will have a tightening impact on the economy. So before we leave the macro, you mentioned earlier that you thought that the Fed was going to pause uh, or not raise rates at next week's FOMC meeting. What about July? We had a really strong jobs number. We still, like you said, have CPI, which is not, I mean, it's in the right direction, but it's not close to the 2%. How do you feel about July and then going further down the year? Well, so we actually anticipate that inflation will be coming down at a reasonable pace. Our expectation is by the end of this year, inflation levels about 3%. But that's not 2%, and 2% has been the stated target by the Fed for what they want inflation to be at before they actually stop engaging in quantitative tightening and, at that point in time, have a pivot or a real pause in quantitative tightening. So we're nowhere near that. And so this gives them the opportunity in July to make a decision. Have they seen further evidence that, in fact, inflation is on a glide path down, or will they need to raise rates again. And this gives them the opportunity to make that decision based on more relevant data and also more recent data. So do you see uh, the Fed cutting at any point? And is the market on the same page as you in that regard? So the market has been pricing in a Fed cut sequence and or a pivot, if you prefer. We think certainly in the latter half of 2023, we think that's aggressive. We wouldn't expect really absent a very unexpected event, and we could get one, whether a there's risk to the systemic financial system or there's a geopolitical event that occurs that's not predicted or expected, we could see a pivot in that case. 
But if we're talking about the backdrop that we've been speaking about, which is simply a slowdown to the economy that isn't going to be too terrible, which will, of course, bring down inflation, that will be exactly the glide path the Fed was hoping for. And so that wouldn't be enough to spur them to pivot or cut rates. Market participants have tended to believe that, uh, that the Fed would cut rates. I think that's because for the last 15 years, we've, been had, we've had this quantitative easing environment, and investors have become trained to expect the Fed to throw in the towel and pivot and be very dovish. I think that's not the world that we live in today. And I think that's overly aggressive in your expectations. So no one should expect the Fed put. I think the Fed put is gone. Yeah. I don't think that we can expect a Fed put. Again, absent a very strong change to or an exogenous event that we don't currently have predicted. There's always that caveat, but that's not what we see right now. So you mentioned also earlier that you thought this was going to be a shallow recession. How does the credit profile of borrowers play into that analysis? Yeah, I think it's important to realize that, as I said, for the first half of this year, this has been a rates environment, and we've seen a lot of volatility. I mentioned at the outset that we are in in a very idiosyncratic risk world. That's what I'm talking about is coming. This is where credit really comes into play. And so we haven't seen the default cycle start in a meaningful way. We haven't seen the downgrade cycle really evolve as we would expect it would when we see an economic slowdown. And we certainly haven't seen the sell-off in equities, all of which we could expect to take place in an environment where we're in a recessionary economy and we're starting to see real significant slowdowns. I think it's also relevant to note that we're in the seasonal time frame of volatility. There's the old adage, sell in May and go away and come again after some fall holiday. And the truth is, is that summers have a history of being much more volatile in terms of markets. And a lot of that is driven by geopolitics, but it's also as we go through the year and we see changes in credit. Right. And so uh, idiosyncratic also means kind of issuer specific. At an index level, coverage ratios are high, debt levers are relatively low, kind of heading into a recession. Liquidity is pretty good, but it can vary significantly company by company, industry by industry. Well, let's take, for example, banks. So in the first part of the year, now think about this. We've had over approximately $30 billion dollars of debt and preferred stock issuance that has gone to zero value. Now, when was the last time we saw that? And in fact, recent publications suggest that recoveries on defaults are much lower than previous cycles, driven by a few other individual transactions whose recoveries were approximately one cent for debt holders. When you're seeing that kind of unexpected but idiosyncratic or individual issue of risk, that's really rising. And so investors really want to be thoughtful about individual credit selection. This is you know, an opportunity to think about passive fixed income asset management is not necessarily going to hold you in good stead in this particular environment. It's going to be very, very challenging because knowledgeable investors are going to have to really select those individual securities that are going to retain value and are not going to suffer that kind of default. Given this backdrop, 
how are you thinking now about market opportunities and deploying capital today? Where are you finding value? Where are you avoiding risk? How are you thinking about this? Well, so I think this is a very important time. When you're in a quantitative tightening environment, when you're in a fiscal tightening environment, capital rationing occurs. And so investors that have capital ready to deploy will be able to take advantage of, I think, very good opportunities. I mentioned credit is a risk, but it's also an opportunity. And that is that as you have investors who aren't able to deploy capital as they may have been able to in the past, then those of us who are available to make that, you know, to fill that gap, if you will, are going to be able to command stronger covenants and better investor protections. And I think that's long overdue for investors. But what are we doing to be able to get ready for that moment? We're going up in credit quality. And credit quality, depending on where we are, could mean up in the credit capital stack. It could mean up in credit quality. It can also mean getting more liquid assets in portfolios, all of which are designed to be defensive mechanisms and investment portfolio protections while we go through the initial part of what we would expect to be a sell-off coming into a recession in these markets, but leading to an opportunity to deploy capital very favorably for our portfolio investors. But even as you're adopting this defensive stance, you're not really sacrificing yield in this environment. No, the one good thing we can say for our friends at the Fed is because of all of their tightening and 500 basis points of rate hikes is they put the income back in fixed income. And actually, even staying in investment grade, we're earning approximately 5.5% and sometimes better. Uh, and certainly in high credit quality, high yield, where we're up in the capital stack, we can earn quite a bit more up, upper single digits in yield. This is paying us for risk to wait out the opportunity to then be able to deploy in riskier assets in the future. So we are absolutely not suffering in our portfolios, and our investors are absolutely able to reap those benefits. So let's talk about one sector first, and that is the spread relationship between high-grade securitized credit and high-grade corporate credit. They're in a relationship that you don't see very often. Yeah, so historically, Guggenheim, we're very, very adept at corporate credit analysis and investment as well as structured credit. And historically, certainly during quantitative easing timeframes, the spread differential between those two sectors remains rather tight. It is at very significant wide levels right now. And so you can invest in investment grade, high credit quality investment grade, structured credit, whether that's CLOs or esoteric asset-backed securities or mortgage-backed securities at very attractive yields right now, certainly relative to its own history, but also relative to corporate credit alternatives. And this, again, gives us an opportunity to gain quite a bit more yield. Interestingly enough, there's another advantage to structured credit is it's also predominantly a floating rate market. And so we're able to take advantage of the fact that the uh, yield curve inversion benefits floating rate assets. So you've got a double benefit that's happening right now in that space. So it's a very good spot for us to deploy uh, capital right now. So just for our listeners who want to put a number on things, what does that mean in terms of the type of yield you'll get, say, on a similarly rated structured credit versus corporate credit? Well, so on a high credit quality, say AAA or AA uh, CLO, we're touching 7%. Uh, yield 
relative to that 5.5% that we're able to get in a high-credit quality corporate bond uh, with a longer duration and, of course, not floating rate, more on the fixed side. So that's quite a spread uh, that we're able to achieve in that space. And for credits that we are very, very confident in their ability to perform over the course of time. Now, how's supply uh, and technical factors? I know that there was a, a drop-off in issuance as... Uh, issuers were kind of dealing with the sticker shock of these higher coupons, but how do you see that playing out going forward? Well, there has been a decline in issuance across all markets. Obviously, borrowers don't want to pay higher prices, i.e. yields, to obtain uh, financing, but they end up having to. And so as a result, there's plenty of available types of different securities for us to be able to access and invest in on behalf of our portfolios and our clients. There is one downside, and that is price discovery gets a little bit more challenging in this kind of environment. So you have to be able to really understand how to price these securities the best way to provide that value into the portfolios. So uh, talk to me about one other uh, aspect of your portfolio construction, your thoughts on duration. Where do you want to be on the yield curve? Interestingly enough, duration is really, at this point in time, open to debate. And I'll tell you why. One, you can be in the short end of the curve because it's highly inverted, and you'll get the benefit of the aspect of that yield, additional yield. But we also believe that as inflation drops, so too will the 10-year and the longer end of the curve, which will be more anchored at the level or rate of inflation. And so right now, we're about 370 on the 10-year. Our view is the trajectory on the 10-year will be to slide towards about 3% as we start to see inflation decline as well. So probably by the end of this year. That's a pretty substantial move at the long end as well. So you know, I think that uh, you have a lot of opportunities along the entire shape of the yield curve to position portfolios based on the types of investment securities that are um, available at each one of those yield curve points. So it sounds like going forward, in addition to earning a coupon, assuming you've chosen your credits properly, there's also a potential upside from principal appreciation as rates fall across the curve. Uh, that is exactly the opportunity set. And frankly, I think uh, in the high yield space, so the non-investment grade space, particularly public high yield bonds, they should, over the course of the next you know, 12 months or so, start to outperform relative to bank loans, for example, because we should start to see a shift of the yield curve shape. And, uh, and this should help the, the belly of the curve, and that will also help. So adding duration at this point in time actually could add portfolio value. So I don't think that, that you could really be disadvantaged by adding duration. You mentioned before the opportunity set for people who have dry powder, let's call it capital, that they can deploy uh, when opportunities arise down the road. How do you see that playing out? Do you, do you see that in public securities? Do you see it in private debt opportunities or uh, other opportunities, real estate? How do you think that will play out? So... This is, I'll go back to the, the word of the day, idiosyncratic risk. I think it's, in the old adage, it's a stock picker's market. Well, in this days, it's a bond picker's market. And so as a result, we also look across all the different markets, public, private, corporate, structured, municipal uh, rates, 
we really do look at the entire universe of available opportunities for selection of securities. And we are going to deploy capital where we think there's the best relative value. And relative value is relative to other opportunities and also relative to a particular sector's own history. And so right now there's a lot of opportunity in asset categories that we historically haven't participated in. For example, because of the failures and the uh, instability of the banking uh, community earlier this year, mortgage-backed securities have, you know, agency mortgage-backed securities are being sold by the FDIC at spreads that we haven't seen. They're offering value. So even within their space, looking at their own history, you can find value. We can find value in investment-grade structured credit. Again, we've already talked about how much spread you can get relative to corporate credit there. But I also look at duration and find that there's some very good value that can be had in some of the longer securities, depending on what they are and where where they sit in terms of where we think their value is going forward. So there's a lot of opportunity, but it's really almost security specific at this point. And do you think that there will be opportunities in private credit, both for as an investor, but also for borrowers to go the private route as opposed to the public route? Well, let's look at the private market. So there are about 3,600 listed companies, public stock uh, entities. There are over 5,000 private companies. Those private companies are going to be issuing private debt. They're not likely to issue in the public markets. So there will be continued opportunity there. And What's really going to be advantaged in the future is the fact that those issues will, from a creditor's perspective, will be able to command stronger covenants and better investor protections. So I think private credit is going to offer a tremendous amount of value. You asked earlier about real estate. You know, real estate is not one in, you know, big monolithic uh, sector. There's hotels and apartments and industrial properties in addition to office. And while office can be expected to be troubled because of what's happening in the dynamic of return to office, those other sectors continue to be particularly multifamily and industrial continue to be underbuilt in the U.S. So again, there's opportunity there, but it's very unique and you really have to be able to sift through the opportunity sets to find those really good investment opportunities. So it sounds like in a capital rationing scenario, the lender with capital has more bargaining power. Absolutely. All right. Well, I guess you'll be taking advantage of that. We will indeed on behalf of our portfolios and our clients. So, well, Ann, this has been terrific. But to close out our conversation, I know that you are committed to advancing the participation and success of women in financial services in general and asset management in particular in your profession. Can you tell us a little about how you got to where you are today? And what advice would you give a a young woman who has similar ambitions to one day sit in your seat? I think the asset management industry is a tremendous industry for women to join. It is an industry where we have high integrity and we have a substantial obligation to our clients to protect their investments, their assets, their life savings. I can't find a bigger purpose in my life than to serve my clients. And, you know, young women today look for purpose. Frankly, many young people, not just young women, look for purpose in their career. And I think this is one that particularly should resonate with young women. The shame of it is only about 10% of portfolio managers are women. 
And I think that there's a tremendous opportunity to change that dynamic uh, and bring women into this industry. And oh, by the way, the other element is, is that I've been in this business almost 40 years. So you can have a very long career in this industry in a way that, frankly, a lot of other businesses, you can't enjoy that kind of longevity. And I think that there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for people and particularly for women in this industry. Terrific. I hope all the women out there are listening. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Well, before I let you go, uh, are there any other last words that you might have for all the people who are listening to us today? Well, frankly, I just want to thank all of our listeners for joining us today. I hope that you found this time with us to be of value, and we appreciate you so much. So thank you, everybody. Well, thank you again, Anne, for your time and your insights. I hope you'll come back and visit with us soon. And thanks to all of you who have joined us for our podcast. If you like what you are hearing, please rate us five stars. And if you have any questions for Anne or any of our other podcast guests, please send them to us at macromarkets at guggenheiminvestments.com, and we will do our best to answer them on a future episode or offline. I'm Jay Diamond, and we look forward to gathering again for the next episode of Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments. In the meantime, for more of our thought leadership, visit guggenheiminvestments.com perspectives. So long. Important notices and disclosures. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Stock markets can be volatile. Investments in securities of small and medium capitalization companies may involve greater risk of loss and more abrupt fluctuations in market price than investments in larger companies. The market value of fixed income securities will change in response to interest rate changes and market conditions, among other things. Investments in fixed income instruments are subject to the possibility that interest rates could rise, causing their value to decline. High-yield securities present more liquidity and credit risk than investment-grade bonds, and may be subject to greater volatility. Investors in asset-backed securities, or ABS, including mortgage-backed securities, or MBS, and collateralized loan obligations, or CLOs, generally receive payments that are part interest and part return of principal. These payments may vary based on the rate loans are repaid. Some asset-backed securities may have structures that make their reaction to interest rates and other factors difficult to predict, making their prices volatile, and are subject to liquidity and valuation risk. CLOs bear similar risk to investing in loans directly, such as credit, interest rate, counterparty, prepayment, liquidity and valuation risks. Loans are often below investment grade, may be unrated, and typically offer a fixed or floating interest rate. This podcast is distributed or presented for informational or educational purposes only, and should not be considered a recommendation of any particular security, strategy or investment product, or as investing advice of any kind. This material is not provided in a fiduciary capacity, may not be relied upon for or in connection with the making of investment decisions, and does not constitute a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. The content contained herein is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal or tax advice and or a legal opinion. Always consult a financial tax and or legal professional regarding your specific situation. This podcast contains opinions of the author or speaker, but not necessarily those of Guggenheim Partners or its subsidiaries. The opinions contained herein are subject to change without notice. Forward-looking statements, estimates and certain information contained herein are based upon proprietary and non-proprietary research and other sources. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable,
but are not assured as to accuracy. No part of this material may be reproduced or referred to in any form without express written permission of Guggenheim Partners LLC. There is neither representation nor warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based on such information. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Guggenheim Investments represents the investment management businesses of Guggenheim Partners LLC. Securities are distributed by Guggenheim Funds Distributors LLC.